This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for October 7th, 2019. In this podcast, I talk to an attorney fighting against government overreach, but I ask him, is he more interested in protecting the rights of citizens or of corporations? Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, What matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. And coming up for you in this podcast. When you rent a house, uh, you know, you're not forced by law to to rent certain property over others. And I think, you know, but you might be be forced by circumstances to do that. Right. So and I, I and I can and I agree with you. Actually, I agree with you when you say, yeah, when you have yeah. a freer market, you're gonna pull more supply into the market. Although I don't know if you can supply more land in San Francisco to build houses on. That's coming up in a minute. First of all, I want to thank all my donors on Patreon. I really appreciate everyone who contributes. If you don't know, Patreon is a system that allows people to donate a buck or two per podcast or per month. That helps me to devote more time to research and to finding interesting guests. If you think that you could do the same as them, there's details on the website and at the end of the show. Francis Rawls is in jail, and that's where he's staying. He lost his case at the Third U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Philadelphia. So what's he been convicted of? Nothing. Rawls, a former Philadelphia police officer, has been in jail for 17 months because he invoked the Fifth Amendment. He said he wouldn't give self-incriminating information to police investigating him. But the Fifth Amendment is, you know, the Fifth Amendment. It guarantees the right not to incriminate yourself. The exact text is, No person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. So how come the court denied his appeal with three judges voting unanimously against him? It's partly because the information that the police and the courts want him to hand over, and that he's refusing are the passwords to encrypted external hard drives that were connected to his computer. The police seized them along with his computer because they believe they contain child porn, and they do have a good reason to believe that, and they convinced a judge to give them a warrant to seize and search his computer. The appeals court ruled that forensic examination showed that Rawls had downloaded thousands of files, the hash values of which indicated they were child pornography. That's a bit of geek speak, but it basically means they were monitoring his online activity. They didn't get the actual files that he downloaded, but they recognised that they were extremely likely to be identical to other files known to be child porn images. There was other evidence. One image depicting a pubescent girl in a sexually suggestive position was found on his computer. Rawls' sister said her brother showed her hundreds of pictures and videos of child porn, 
and the logs on his computer suggested the user had visited groups with titles common in child exploitation. There are some problems with that evidence. Logs of a computer visiting pages with titles common in child exploitation doesn't mean that the computer downloaded child porn, and they don't prove who generated those logs. But that said, you can be damn sure that I won't be leaving Francis Rawls alone with any child of mine. But Rawls hasn't been convicted of anything. He hasn't even been charged with anything. But the court ruled that the Fifth Amendment doesn't apply. The lower court, the appeals court, and the police all agreed that the presence of child porn on his drives was a foregone conclusion. That's where my real problem was. If it's a foregone conclusion, why not just use the evidence that shows it's a foregone conclusion to charge and convict Rawls? We've had a speaker from the Electronic Frontier Foundation on the podcast before, and one of their attorneys said about this case, compelled decryption is inherently testimonial because it compels a suspect to use the contents of their mind to translate unintelligible evidence into a form that can be used against them. The Fifth Amendment provides an absolute privilege against such self-incriminating decryption. But the court disagreed, and Rawls stays in prison until he hands over the passwords, even though he's already been inside for longer than he might expect to be if he was sentenced for possessing child porn. It's hard to have sympathy with someone who's probably a paedophile, but that's the whole point. If our rights can be cancelled just by being accused of being a criminal, then none of those rights will last long. There's no point in saying that everyone is entitled to a fair trial as long as they're not suspected of being a criminal. And this is not a rarefied situation. Many countries have a variation of this, but New Zealand has gone a step further and made it a crime for anyone travelling in or out of that country not to unlock their phone or other devices for border officials to snoop through and copy as they see fit. No reason, no warrant required, and anyone who doesn't comply will have their devices confiscated along with a $5,000 fine. So if anyone you've ever been sexting with decides to take a trip to New Zealand, you can expect your private photos to be shared around the break room of the border guards and then be sent on to all their friends and their friends' friends and so on. It's long been established that countries are entitled to check the goods coming across their borders to make sure that they're legitimate, the right taxes are paid and so on. When the electronic age came in, it seems to have been quietly extended to examining the data stored on laptops, phones and so on. I just don't buy the line that this is to protect us from terrorists or organised crime. Anyone who is wise to these laws will be smart enough to make sure that they only travel with clean devices. If they want to store or transport incriminating data, they can just encrypt it, email it to themselves and pick it up once they've crossed the border. Sure, these laws might pick up the odd, dumb criminal, but that leaves the question. 
Are you willing to sacrifice all of your privacy, hand over all of your data to the border agents of any country you or anyone you've been in contact with travels to for them to make use of on their next bathroom break or to pass on to their secret police just to pick up the odd, dumb criminal? Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On the line now, I have Wen Fa. He is an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation, which is a national non-profit legal organization that represents hundreds of clients each year for free. On their website, they say that they defend the individual liberty and constitutional rights of Americans threatened by government overreach and abuse. When is that a big job? What sort of uh, things do you have to defend against? Uh, it is certainly a big, a big job. Uh, we defend against uh, government regulation uh, that stifles innovation, that threatens individual liberty. Mm-hmm. Uh, we focus on five core areas. Uh, property rights, separation of powers, equality before the law, uh, free speech and economic liberty. Mm-hmm. I myself focus on free speech and equality before the law. I've been looking at some of the cases that you list on your website, but maybe you can tell me a little bit about the ones that are most prominent for you. What cases stand out most for you that are most important for you? Yeah, I mean, I love all of my cases, but let me just give you an example from both of those areas that I litigate in. Mm-hmm. So in equality of the law, we litigate against uh, government discrimination. When the government discriminates on the basis of race, mm-hmm. we think that's wrong and that's unconstitutional. So for one of my cases, we're representing seven black and Hispanic families who can't get into uh world-class magnet schools in Hartford, Connecticut, because there's a racial quota that keeps them out of schools with thousands of empty seats. So that's one example. Uh, In the free speech context, uh, we represent clients um, against overbroad regulations uh, that uh, are applied arbitrarily and that um, uh, deprive them of their right to free speech. So for example, um, in uh, in California, we represent a soccer fan who wanted to have a, a slogan celebrating his soccer team uh, mm-hmm. on his license plate, and the DMV said that was too offensive and denied him that uh, license plate. And we've also represented uh, people at the uh, Supreme Court of the United States who wanted to vote uh, in T-shirts um, that the, the government contained considered too political for the polling place. Okay, I'll get back to both of those last two cases in a little while. But just to establish, you say uh, on your website that you represent your clients for free. Who pays the bills? Absolutely. So we are funded primarily by uh, donors across the United States, people who believe in individual liberty, mm-hmm. um, free uh, free markets and property rights. Um, and that's that's the primary way by which a non-profit organization like PLF uh, gets its funding. Okay. And when you say by donors, is that primarily by people who put 10 or 50 bucks in an envelope and send it to you? Or is it by people who write six-figure or seven-figure checks? Yeah, that can come in from a, a variety of 
variety of ways. Most of our donors are individual donors, and I believe um, I don't have the exact statistics, but mm-hmm. most of our uh, donations are are uh, smaller checks, as you've described. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, people can go to our website at PacificLegal.org, and they can write a check um, for ten dollars or twenty dollars or or fifty dollars. In fact, <laughs> you know, many uh, of my friends, as well as uh, family members who support my work have done so. Uh, sure, and but pause with that. You say uh, most of the donors are small donors. Is most of the amount collected from small donors or would the largest amount of money come from big checks? Yeah, I, I don't have, you know, I'm, I'm a litigator, I'm an attorney, so I don't, I don't know off the top of my head uh, that the precise statistics um, you can find more information about that uh, on our website at pacificlegal.org. Um, but, you know, I... I okay, we'll link, we'll link to that. We'll link to that in the show notes to, to your website and people can have a look at that and make their own decisions on that. I want to look at a couple of the cases that you've taken. And I have to say, some of them look really important. They're cases that anybody, I think, should be able to see are defending the mm-hmm. liberties of people and that's really important. But once in a Absolutely. while, in the, and you list lots of cases on your website, and a couple of them seem to be, seem to me to be maybe correct, but a little bit trivial. And the two actually that you mentioned are about the soccer fan who wanted to have on his license plate. And I think people should understand the background to this. The slogan is C-O-Y. W, which stands for Come On You Whites. Mm-hmm. Now, Come On You Whites refers to a British soccer team uh, in Fulham in, in London, and they wear white kit when they play. And this is really quite a well-known slogan to support this particular soccer team. I don't think they're so well-known in the United States, but they're certainly very well-known in Britain. And and you can see why the, why the DMV were being a little bit cautious with this, this, you know, could mean something else in an American context. And even if that was taken out with the best of intentions, you can see that they could have a reason to be cautious where something is ambiguous. Um, actually, I, I can't see it because the configuration itself says C-O-Y-W. I, yeah. You know, I suspect most Californians wouldn't know what that means, but everybody who did know what it meant would know that it's not offensive. So I think that highlights, uh, you know, one of the problems with an arbitrary and vague rule in that it will be applied uh, arbitrarily. Uh, the bureaucrats who are enforcing them will be mm-hmm. enforcing the law, will apply it arbitrarily. And it's not really just limited. You know, Mr. Kotler, our client, has a, has a very uh, sympathetic story, a very great story that his free speech rights are violated, but it's not just Ms. Kotler. California DMV has denied uh, several license plates, uh, such as Zen Red for Red Zinfidel um, and, uh, you know, Jedi Scum, a, a Star Wars reference. Uh, mm-hmm. And it just highlights the problems with an arbitrary law like the one in, uh, in California. Some countries around the world don't give any personalized license plates at all. It's a fairly I would have thought a fairly low ticket item if you're defending free speech, but I take your point. The other one that you mentioned there, which I've been reading up about, was about people who wanted to go vote while wearing T-shirts that essentially had political slogans on them. And I can see how that's clearly a free speech issue. But would you accept that there's pushback there that, for example, 
if a polling place, a voting centre, seemed to be effectively taken over by one political faction or another, just by having large numbers of people wearing attire that made it clear they were affiliated to one political group or another, that could have an intimidatory effect. Having a cool atmosphere in a voting place, that's a thing worthwhile protecting, isn't it? Well, so there are two separate um, things that you mentioned. Having a um, uh, an atmosphere, having a, a calm atmosphere at the polling place, and also wearing T-shirts. And I guess the um, just w- simply wearing a T-shirt does mm-hmm. not threaten the ability of a, a state to impose other laws. For example, saying that people shouldn't um, engage in protests or or start a riot in the polling place. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of these voters just. I mean, I think they're required by law. To, if they go to vote, they, they walk in and they vote and they leave. But I think the law that you just mentioned that we're challenging under the First Amendment actually threatens a state's ability to maintain a calm atmosphere because you have, uh, in the cases of some of my clients' stories, you have firefighters who wanted to wear in a firefighter uniform uh, after a shift, after their shift, mm-hmm. and um, the government actually, the election judges manning the polling place actually stopped them from voting and told them to take off their uniforms because um, because there happened to be a ballot about firefighter pay uh, on, on the ballot that day. So I think the, the conflict between voters and election judges from enforcing this overbroad and vague regulation on political speech on election day uh, poses exactly the, the kind of threats that you mentioned. Okay, and I understand what you're saying, and I can see that point, and that it can be enforced over broadly, and I would accept that. But if you look around the world, you'll see places that are clearly dictatorships where there's no semblance of democracy, the North Korea type places, and there's places that have quite a good quality democracy. But in between, there's a lot of places that have more or less democratic governments But if you want to organize or just go and vote for the opposition party, you're going to find a lot of low-level intimidation and threatening. And it's important to have rules to make sure that that doesn't happen. And if you have somebody maybe who's in a minority in the district that they're in, and they show up to go to vote, and they see a lot of people who may or may not be organized there, but who are wearing attire that they think, you know, that that could indicate they're going to be hostile to the voter, you can see why it's a good idea to have rules. And, and, you know, it's not a terribly onerous thing to do to say somebody to somebody, you know, if you have a political slogan on your T-shirt, turn the T-shirt inside out for the time you're going in to vote. So, uh, you know, I, I, I fully accept that, uh, you know, people shouldn't be intimidating others by force and things of that sort. Yeah, but the uh, suggestion, the suggestion could also work. And if one person is allowed to show up with either a uniform or political slogans on a, on a shirt, then 50 other people are allowed to do it. And if you're going in to vote against 50, and there's 50 people in the room wearing something that indicates they're hostile to you, that, that's going down a dangerous path, isn't it? I disagree. Uh, as the Supreme Court mentioned in Minnesota Voters Alliance versus Mansky, the the Supreme Court case that Pacific Legal litigated and won, mm-hmm. um, 
there are many states that actually don't have laws banning political apparel, political T-shirts and political hat at the polling place. So you can mm-hmm. have one person voting in a T-shirt. You can have 50 people wearing uh, going to a polling place with a, t- a certain T-shirt or a hat. Mm-hmm. And there's really no evidence in all the years that they've they didn't have laws like that. There has, has ever been uh, people who were, um, you know, intimidated out of voting just by the virtue of others wearing a T-shirt or a hat. Uh, you know, I fully accept the premise that people shouldn't be uh, uh, in in the United States. But d- d- but d- when when democracy is fragile, and I think you're probably right in the United States, although. A lot of people were intimidated out of voting by other means. But if you look around the world, that's not an uncommon tactic. Well, I I don't know how elections in in every uh, country uh, works, but in the United States, I I think you do have a strong political, uh, you have a strong First Amendment right in political speech. Uh, Many courts have said it is a core of the First Amendment. And, you know, I I think it is a very important mode of expression for for many people. I mean, a, a statute that bans people from expressing their political views on election day out mm-hmm. of all the all the days in the year is like is like a statute that bans people from saying Merry Christmas on December 25th. I mean, I, I can think of no other date on which it's more important to be able to express yourself and your political views. Okay. And um, to move on from that, because I don't want to harp on that too much, I'm looking through kind of various cases that you guys have done. And I have to say, I, I'm kind of cheering for you in many of the cases. I think you're standing up for individual liberty, which is something that I value a lot. But in many of the cases that you're taking, there is kind of a theme that you're standing up for the liberty of uh, corporations more than individuals. And I see one case, um, or several cases actually, that you're dealing with about vaping, also about landlords' rights, whether they can put particular conditions in their tenancies, and also how they can offer those. Is it possible that sometimes the individual needs the state to vindicate their rights when the individual is much less powerful than a corporation? Well, I, you know, I think corporations, individuals, there's not, you know, a, a huge gulf between the two. Uh, corporations are also uh, run by individuals. And, you know, I believe in a free society where people can trade and choose uh, who they want to associate with and, you know, who they don't want to um, uh, do business uh, with. You know, you can shop at, some people like to shop at Walmart, other people like to sh- shop at Target. So I think there's a lot of choice and flexibility in which corporations, individuals want to deal with. Um, so, you know, to, to go back to... Oh, if I know, oh, wait, 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 that's, that's, that's true when, that's true sometimes, but it's not always true. If you're living in a place like Seattle or San Francisco, where there's very, very intense competition for housing, you don't really have a choice as to whether you can live in one location or another. You're really trying very hard to get whatever place you can afford. Well, I, I, you know, I think you do have a choice um, 
in in housing in general. And I, you know, to go back to that, why is there a housing shortage? Uh, accepting that premise, why is there a housing shortage in places like California? And I think the the reason that we do most of our uh, many of our property rights cases, is we mm-hmm. believe a free market in housing would actually increase the supply of housing. And as you know, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the the economic principles that if you increase the supply and the demand stays constant, you're actually going to be able to lower the prices yes. and increase the choice. Um, so, I, you know, I think a lot of the work that we do in the arena of property rights is absolutely crucial and absolutely fundamental um, to individual liberty and the ability of individuals to choose um, uh, the best places for them to live. W- would you argue then that somebody renting a home up against maybe a large corporation that's renting out perhaps hundreds or thousands of properties, that there's an equality of power between those two? Look, I, I think that people are free to uh, choose uh, where they want to rent. Uh, when you rent a house, uh, you know, you're not forced by law to, to rent certain property over others. And I think, you know, the no, but you, you might be, oh, no, 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 but you might be forced by circumstances to do that. Right. So and I, I and I can and I agree is. with you. Actually, I agree with you when you say, yeah, when you have yeah. a freer market, you're gonna pull more supply into the market. Although I don't know if you can supply more land in San Francisco to build houses on, but I do agree with that principle in general. But that's not really very consoling. And if you are, for example, you find that the company that rents you your apartment in San Francisco, which is a very hot rental market. If you find that that company can rent your place to someone else for a hundred bucks more a month and they can say, we decide when your kids change school, that doesn't feel like an equal distribution of power. And to have an ordered and fair society, surely it's necessary to have some protections for renters. Well, I think the question is, would an individual who has 10 viable choices have more or less bargaining power than an individual who only has two choices or maybe even only one choice? And Mm -hmm. I think we would both agree that the individual would have uh, more bargaining power and more options Mm -hmm. if he had many choices. So I think the question then is, uh, how do you ensure that people have uh, as many uh, choices as as uh, the free market would allow? Do you have that by onerous provisions that requires, um, you know, 10 years to get a permit uh, to be able to build a condominium or an apartment building? Or do you do you? Uh, do individuals attain that choice uh, with a with free market principles that allow builders to build? And you know, I, I, I sense some antipathy antipathy towards large corporations, but I don't think there's anything wrong with corporations who want to make money, who want to make a profit. And you know, by by the desire to make a profit, they're they're encouraged and incentivized to enter the housing market and provide services to individuals that might need them. No, I don't actually have any antipathy to them, although I will press the opposite case with you because we try to have a bit of a discussion. But, <laughs> but, but what I do think is important is that, and I think it's clear that your, you know, your, your firm is coming from a libertarian background, which is fine. And that's, uh-huh. that's a, yep. that's a, that's a noble tradition, but it may be the case 
that over government overreach, because you have an overly powerful government, you need someone to stand up for the citizen on that. But now we have corporations in the United States that are far bigger than the governments of many, many countries. And I think it's a bit naive to say that th- that Mark Zuckerberg is just another citizen who needs his rights protected in the same way as Joe Schmo. And in fact, it is possible for large corporations to infringe people's rights really very severely. Well, I, I don't agree that it's naive to say that uh, Mark Zuckerberg has the same rights as, as everybody else. You know, I think everyone has the right to life, liberty, and property, um, and I think that's consistent regardless of your economic status. Sure, sure yeah, no, but Mark, Mark, Mark Zuckerberg is more powerful than many arms of government, and, and it is within well, his gift to infringe the rights of many, many citizens as has happened and is on the record, and he can get away with it because he's a multi-bazillionaire. And I just feel, and I mean, I, I support so much of what you do, but I feel that there's a naivety there and a focus on government overreach, which I would agree with, and almost a blindness to corporate overreach. Well, I, 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 you know, I don't know all the um, ins and outs with the, I know there's been a lot about Facebook over the last uh, well, that's just an example. I, I, there's a know, thousand not... companies. There's a thousand companies that can make your life hell by infringing your rights. And you have, you know, if you're an ordinary person, you have, very, you may have a legal right, but the vindicating that right might be so impractically difficult that in effect, you don't have any comeback. Right. So if a corporation violates your your, your right to life, liberty, and property, I, I think you should have, you know, a redress in the courts mm-hmm. um, for that. For example, if a corporation takes your uh, property, um, I, I think, um, yeah, I think an individual should have some re- uh, redress for that. Um, and I think the problem, one of the problems that, you know, we might agree on, just to see if we can find a, a point of agreement here, mm-hmm. is that, you know, uh, the government, there, there are only, uh, you know, there are ways in which the government can use its power that are legitimate and also ways that it could use its power that, that are illegitimate. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, corporations, no different from individuals, shouldn't be um, given illegitimate benefits uh, by the government. And I think that's something actually that, you know, you might not see with just uh, – uh, you know, just reading our, our website for the first time. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of these laws, uh, regulations against innovation and against uh, that that stifle innovation and individual liberty, actually the big businesses love that because they are trying to keep out competitors. Um, you know, they stand to benefit when mm-hmm. the government keeps out competitors, keeps out smaller businesses from entering the, the marketplace. So I think the solution that we were we would propose there isn't to, um, you know, isn't to go after the the corporation, but to say that the government use of its power, whether prodded by that corporation or by someone else, is illegitimate and um, should be uh, struck down by courts as unconstitutional in in certain circumstances. Sure, and and I, I agree with that. And I think that courts, and all the way up to the Supreme Court, are an enforcer of rights 
of last resort. But I would hope that government would vindicate the rights of individuals normally just as a matter of course without anybody ever having to go to court. But And on your website, you're talking about vaping and that's an, perhaps an, an interesting new topic. But we've looked previously on this podcast at vaping companies, particularly uh, the owners of uh, Marlborough who've bought out Juul, targeting children, doing things like manipulating their way into schools in order to promote their product to high school students and sponsoring summer camps for kids as young as 13 years old in order to do research on how best to market what is a highly addictive product to children. Now, you could in one way say that a way to remedy that is for each of those children to take a case all the way to the Supreme Court to sue the Marlboro Corporation. But surely it's better just to say, hang on, marketing addictive products to children should just be illegal. Well, I I think the government certainly has a role in protecting health and safety. So if it can be shown uh, the health risks, I wouldn't say, you know, I wouldn't target single out marketing. I I would just say, you know, uh, certainly regulations that that protect health and safety that are that are related that serve an interest in protecting health and safety. You know, those aren't the type of laws that we actually challenge. Um, with respect to the uh, vaping case itself, or the vaping cases themselves, mm-hmm. You've um, got a few. We, we have a nuanced argument there that basically is in case within our separation of powers um, uh, group, in which you know we represent uh, 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 you know business owners that have used vaping to. Um, quit smoking and Mm -hmm. they've tried smoking through several ways and they've used vaping uh, to quit smoking and that's you know certainly the experience of a lot of people and our argument there is that you know whenever the government passes a uh, new regulation uh, there there are separation of powers uh, in the United States that work together that ensure that each branch of government is exercising their respective powers and checking and balancing other branches of government mm-hmm. so that things have to be done through the proper channel. So, you know, some people might think that's only a procedural um, guarantee, but it actually furthers uh, an individual's right to individual liberty. When Fa, attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation, thank you very much for talking to me. Thanks for having me on, William. Make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com to set out your ideas and defend them on the next podcast. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter, and follow when at WhenFa1. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. Thanks to everyone who has signed up as a patron on Patreon so far. I really appreciate you helping me to devote more time to researching topics and guests. And if you could do the same as them and donate a buck or two per podcast or per month, go to patreon.com slash challenging opinions, or you'll find a link on the website. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. 
Coming up next Monday, that's October 14th, I'll be talking to the veteran academic economist, historian, author and columnist Richard Vedder about what's wrong with higher education and how it can be put right. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening. Thank you.